Welcome to Game Over Montreal. Hey, we had the one loss, and it's right back to the win column from Martin St. Louis, Montreal Canadiens. It is a different team nowadays. Down 3-1 to one of the best teams in the entire league this year, and the Canadians claw back in. I'm going to welcome in my guest here, Shane Malloy. Shane, weirdest thing of this Montreal Canadiens season might be that they just swept the Calgary Flames. Crazy they won both games. Sounds. Yeah, considering you know how good Calgary obviously has been this year, they had some ups and downs, but primarily they've been juggernaut team in some respects. And they were up three one, and you know the the plucky Montreal Canadiens found their way to get back, and you know led by you know Bobby Orr, you know Ben Sherratt, and his two goals and one assist in twenty five minutes. Um, you know I saw your tweet, which is actually it gave me a good chuckle. Is you know. You know, hey, Kyle Dubas, knock, knock, knock. You know, are you watching? You know, Ben Sherrod. I've been doing that like the last two weeks, ever since the game against Toronto. And Leafs fans don't appreciate it for some reason. No, but, you know, I found it comical in the fact that, you know, it just happens to be they talk about that type of player. You know, you're trying to maximize, obviously, value coming into the trade deadline for that standpoint. So, no, he looked he looked great. Um, hey, look, no bones. He's a defensive defenseman. But, you know, this is what feeling good about yourself. And, you know, I'm sure you guys have talked about this on the show, about the concept over strategy with, you know, the head coach, Marty St. Louis, and how that allows you to use your cognitive ability and not just be stuck in a system of this, like, I'll be robotic, right? Like, it's just like, it's painful to watch when coaches do that. So it allows some, gives you some leniency and allows players to make mistakes and try things like 100%. you're going to make mistakes. Like It's okay. Right. It's going to happen. Like if you minimize, try to like coach your way into minimizing mistakes, it's awful. Like players hate it and you can't have your players hate what they do. Like, yeah, there's and no, there's no, there's no chance for success, especially. And when things are going bad and the players hate what they're being told to do or being forced yeah. to do, you get what we saw the first half of this season, right? Which was just not only a bad team, but a bad team that most of the players were miserable, you know, like it's, they're getting paid a lot of money, but I think people have to understand the human element of when you hate going into work every day and it's not fun it's hard to be an elite athlete you know i i know people got on jeff petrie a lot this season in the turnaround and from him and cole caulfield as soon as the coaching staff changed like it speaks a lot to what they were going through but also just on the human level the how much a fresh start matters right and how much a change in perspective matters uh this this team, I know, like, let's talk about Ben Sherratt to start because I think he's the hot topic right now. He scored the overtime winner. I believe he scored the go-ahead goal as well. Or maybe it was the third goal, maybe the tying goal. I don't remember. I'm just like, I'm up too late. I've been up too early today. The kids got up at six. It's already almost you. midnight. I, was, I, was, I did the same thing with my boys to get him off to school, so I know. <laughs> it's just, it's hard to keep things straight. But either way, two goals for Big Ben Sherratt tonight. 
they're, they're mentioned during the broadcast. I, th- I think it was Pierre Lebrun or maybe it was Chris Johnston that uh, there's lots of teams in on Ben Sherratt, but all those teams are telling the Montreal Canadiens, you got to lower your ask a little bit. I don't think after tonight that the Canadians are planning on lowering that ask a little bit. Well, they're in a specific strategic time frame where, you know, you allow the marketplace to start to, you know, you, you set your standard and then you see what the different coercive pressures happen over the next 10 days. And that's going to really dictate whether you move off your positions and it bases on bases on the obviously who they're talking about and what they're talking about, whether it's picks or prospects or young players, what it happens to be. Um, I would suspect that you know they're trying to get into that pick and a pick and a prospect type player, um, and I think that's probably what they're looking at. I would suspect that would make the most sense based on their you know the discussions they've had about rebuilding their team. I know everybody like, oh, we can't say the word rebuild. I'm like, come on, look, let's just say what it is. It's okay. I mean, you don't have to have scorched earth. It doesn't have to be Arizona Coyotes. Rebuild doesn't mean stripping structure. it down to the, 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 to the posts, you know, like it doesn't necessarily mean that, but they are rebuilding. There's no question about it. I uh, got a question here. Can one game really do that for Ben Sherratt? no. We're like, I'm being tongue in cheek. I, of course, I think the main thing to keep focus on is that as Ben Sherratt is continually used in all situations, they're trying to showcase him on the right side. Now he's not necessarily playing amazing, but you know, he gets a big performance tonight against a really good team. It does stand out for executives, but I don't think that a game like tonight, uh, it doesn't necessarily change the narrative, but what it does is, um, helps increase recency bias. Of exactly. That positive feeling about that player said, Oh, you know, let's not forget or think about how awful this season has been for Montreal. And that's who Ben Sherrod is, you know, exactly. Like, Cause we are human beings and we are subject to those biases, you know, in a, in a variety of different ways. And it's about sort of reframing and reminding, no, no, this is who he is. He's Ben Sherrod, uh, you know, like St. Louis blues, Ben Sherrod, Right. And the first, you know, when he first came in with Montreal and went to the Stanley Cup finals and it was a stalwart, that's who he is. He's not what he is the first part of the season. So it's sort of, it's part of like reframing those questions. And that has some impact in terms of when you are having those conversations in a negotiation. Like, (laughs) let's make no bones about it. He's not like, he's not going to be pulling a first round pick out of a team, but, you know, you're trying to maximize some value there. Well, it seems like a lot of the insiders are saying that he's definitely getting a first round pick, which is, I mean, it's crazy to me considering like my opinion of Ben Sherratt, but um, I would want to, I wouldn't want to give it up, but if they get a first round pick out of Ben Sherratt and something else, well, good. yeah, no, 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 that's very good return. So yep. I think it's a matter of, you know, the teams are probably asking for a set or saying, we'll give you a second and this prospect or most likely a prospect like, you know, 20 to 22 years of age, somebody that you can immediately, you know, work with comparative. So I think that's more likely, but Hey, they get a first. I mean, I'll be the first to like call up Kent Hughes and go nice steal. You know, there may be teams that are desperate. You only need one greater fool. 
you know, in the marketplace, yep. one, one team that says, Nope, this is the guy we desperately need. He's going to put us over the top. That's the difference. Not, and I'm not meaning he just restructuring our defense, right? He puts other player, players in better positions to allow us to be a better unit. It's what, you know, I try to frame it in that respect. So, but good on Ben, you know, it's always good to feel, you know, happy about their game. And um, I'm looking forward to coming into Montreal. So I'll be in, there in about 11, 12 days, 11 days to catch three games before the trade deadline. So we're going to, I'll get to see the team up close and personal and get a better idea. And hopefully not all the trades happen. Well, hopefully all the trades happen while I'm there and not on my, my, my way back home, right on pretty much the morning or the late night of trade deadline. Yeah. Back as soon as you get on the plane, that's when everything will happen. That's the way the Montreal Canadiens operate. Yeah. I think for, for Ben Sherratt. Oh man, I lost what I was going to say now. Uh, there was a question here. Oh, I, what you mentioned earlier about market pressure. I, I feel like that's the biggest thing for what's going to determine. I mean, I guess that's not really a hot take or anything. That market pressure is going to determine the return. But it's it's things like how long is Jake Muzzin going to be out in Toronto? Not to twist the knife on the Maple Leafs Ben Sherrod. No, thing but that's too a much. perfect that's a perfect example, right? And yeah. then it becomes a situation where it goes from a luxury trade to a we need to fill this hole going into the playoffs because we cannot afford to go out early this time again. Yes. So things change and, drastically. And I think with Ben Sherrod, he fits a certain mold, a type of player. And we'll use Toronto as an example that they actually need is the insulator for a guy who for another defense partner who can be allowed to go out and skate and make plays where Ben can like hold back a little bit because he's played that role. So you look at, you know, the Sandines and like those type and Riley's and those type of defensemen that, you know, or Dermot that you want to be activated in the play on a more active, more consistent basis. But if you have a guy like, you know, Muzzin comes back, but you add Sherratt, they use Toronto as an example. Well, that provides that insulation that they really, that team needs. So that's really about, okay, what do we pay for him? And there's other teams around. Like, you don't think the Calgary Flames would want Ben Sherratt? Yeah, I mean, they're in on it. Apparently, he was supposed to be part of the Toffoli deal, and it was just supposed to be like one mega deal, according to the broadcast tonight. Well, no, and that was, that was, and that was, I confirmed that that was true. Because I was curious too, and then I was just sort of curious. Okay, wait a minute. What did Montreal want that you guys weren't willing to give at that time? Had to be one then, of the higher end prospects, right? Like the Pelche or which you like. I don't blame Calgary. You're not squeezing Pelche out yeah. for Ben Sherrod. I mean, like I just like okay, that's great, Kent, but go away. That's not happening today, <laughs> right? So you know you can come off that ledge there, buddy. Um, no, and it, but they, they're no, but there are players in the Calgary system that I would be interested in to say, okay, no, okay, that's I'd be interested in that player. Um, and a pick, obviously, I think you got to add a little, you got to add something into that as well. So, um, particularly because you need all those draft assets and not necessarily always to trade to like right. to, to pick, but you need them in, in terms of trade value too, right? As that, as you're trying to build your team, it's not all about, okay, everything we get has to be focused on the draft. And yes, it will be because the draft is held in Montreal this year, but you know, you need to sort of spread out where your assets are from that standpoint and getting other people's prospects is not a bad thing. So we're going to see what happens with Montreal in, in that respect. And I just think, 
what this win does for Montreal is it also we talked about the reframing of Sherratt. It reframes the team a little bit too. Is that the players themselves and the, what's going on there? Like, so you're you're getting a player who isn't coming out of this burnt hole of like this destruction, where we, you're getting a player over the next couple of weeks that is feeling good about their game, is feeling good about where they just left. Like that's important, right? Because you don't want to like as a GM trade for a player that you got to like start pumping them full of sunshine, right? Because the last you know three months or four months have just been you know, getting kicked in the kicked in the nether regions every day. <laughs> you know, it's not that's not healthy. That's not good because you also don't want to bring that into your into your room. Yes, they're going to be happy about okay, I'm going to a place going we're going to a playoff team and there's a chance to win. And you know, they do get that initial endorphin of excitement, but you know, it's habit, right? So it's actually in retrospect for Montreal Canadians having the new head coach come in with all these new you know positive vibes and the building guys up again and playing a way that's more fun has a value to it in the trade market as well yeah i feel like that's something that hasn't really been talked about enough in the the value of bringing in martin st louis and having the players frankly just enjoy themselves a little bit because the difference has been unbelievable uh just it's it's actually hard to believe how quickly things changed and how much things changed because it's not even just in terms of performance, which is also big. Like obviously they've gotten, you know, I think six wins now in, I believe this is St. Louis 10th game. So that's great in and of itself, but just the demeanor of players on the bench, on the ice, the, willingness to make the extra play you know it's, it's contagious it is it's and contagious. It, it changed immediately and I, I wonder like some of that for sure is going to be a change in strategy and some players were not happy with things under Dominique Ducharme but I wonder how much of that is also just like how much clout does Martin St. Louis have stepping into a dressing room and saying like we're gonna do this I feel like a lot of NHL players like look at Cole Caulfield. We've talked about it many times in the show. He grew up wearing number 26 in honor of St. Louis. Like that is huge. I mean, you can't, you can't discount his, his aura when he walks into a room. No. Yeah. Particularly around, around maybe it's different if it's like you and I or, or fans, but as players, particularly once you watched him, watched him play when they're younger and he walks into him regardless of what his coaching experience is. Like he walks in and this is Marty St. Louis. You're just like, as a player, you're like, Oh, like you're automatically dialed in. This isn't some guy you're pulled out of like some coach that, Oh, is, you know, working his way up the system. It's just, it changes the whole dynamic that aura matters. Like there's, I've only been in awe of a couple people in hockey where I shook their hand. I was just kind of like Gordie Howe and Jean Beliveau. Yeah. You just, I was like sort of just stunned a little bit there. It took me about a, a good couple seconds and those couple seconds sound, seem like forever. So that impact matters for the team, you know, and he makes them feel good about themselves. Like, so I'm, I'm, I'm like, I'm happy for the players. Cause you never, never want to cover a team. And I've been around it. Like when I covered, 
the Vancouver Canucks and they were bottoming out. It was, you walked into the room, it was palatable. You could feel it in the air. So I think that's going to make a difference for, you know, the value of the Montreal Canadiens and for them moving forward, you know, for the players that stay and then the players that go on because players talk. So when these players leave and go off to other teams, guaranteed the locker room and, and their friends are going to ask that play. What's it like to play with Marty St. Louis? Yeah. What's it like to play there? Oh man, he came in. It was great. I love this. And I love this. And I love this. And they're all excited. Well, players talk and that gets around really fast. So that helps them in terms of you know that free agent acquisition. You know, they talk about Montreal and the taxes. Eh. Look, the players make enough money. They have enough professionals to offset their taxes. It's not really, honestly, that big of an issue. It really, yeah. it's made up so in in the media, but I have enough, you know, I have enough business experience and I hope my degrees have done something to, you know, help my brain figure those things out. It's not that big of a deal. It's more about the organization, how you're treated and what the coaching staff is like. And he's changed that narrative completely overnight. And that's yeah. a massive impact. Huge. You know, it's it's yeah. crazy how much of an impact it's had. Uh, another question here from Thomas is uh, directed towards me. Uh, would you di- be disappointed if they didn't draft in the top five this year because uh, they dominated in the last 25 games or so of the season? I mean, listen, I don't really cheer anymore, although I, I will say I've greatly enjoyed watching the team <laughs> in comparison since Martin St. Louis came aboard. It's definitely the closest I've been to becoming a fan again, just because it's enjoyable and the stark contrast from the first half of the season is such a jarring thing. But there's a very small chance that the Canadians could push themselves out of the bottom five. Of the I'm looking at the year. standings and I would... They're they overtake Seattle, Buffalo, Philadelphia, and New Jersey. Yeah, so they'd have to do maybe, eight, eight points above New Jersey, and New Jersey has a game in hand. Ottawa has two games in hand. I I don't know. Eight points is a big gap, and that's a lot of teams to leapfrog. Well, particularly when you have 27 games left. Yeah. That's a lot. I mean, it, I'm not saying it's not impossible, but, it, you know, if I look, obviously – you know, prospects is my thing. And um, it should be as I look at the draft, you know, I don't have a really have a draft board yet. And it, I don't like when people put out lists this early or mostly actually almost at all, because it's silly. It's, it's, it's data collection time. And until you're ready to put the list together, don't put a list together because it really causes bias disruption because it really set like, although you can look at it and say, Oh, it's only at this time. It really does mess up <clears throat> what your list looks like. And if they're inside the top five, I'm not worried. Ideally, they want number one. You always want to like dictate terms in a draft, but there's some players in the two, three and four hole that, uh, yeah, I think they'd be super happy about getting. And then based on, you know, what they have in the system, <clears throat> don't get me wrong. If you have number one, you're going to take Shane Wright, but, there's a power forward and a defenseman in there that might look good in Montreal colors in three or four years down the road. Yeah. So yeah, 100%. I wouldn't worry about it. All right. Uh, we have to talk about Nick Suzuki a little bit because absolute monster game from him. And we, I had seen several messages in the chat talking about Nick Suzuki so far. So we definitely have to talk about him. It's funny in a game like this, where the Canadians, frankly, 
were pretty great in the first couple periods at even strength, and then the Flames really took over in the third. Suzuki's line was overmatched a little bit in the first period by the fourth line of the Flames, which was weird, but they really elevated every time they weren't against the fourth line and seemed to get better as the game went on. But despite the fact that, like, by the eye test, 100% agree, Nick Suzuki was great tonight. He actually had the lowest uh, shot attempt differential on the team tonight, and that line kind of got buried, which is is funny because I do think that he was fantastic, but it's one of those situations where single-game shot attempt metrics are not necessarily the best tell-all of who had the best game and who had the worst game because also he's... Right. He's playing like defending matchup minutes in the last couple of minutes as well, right? Right. I mean, you take away that, but also it's the way Calgary Flames play. So they're a highly ag- um, aggressive checking team. I don't mean checking in terms of body checking. I mean checking in terms of taking angles to attack and forcing teams to do things they don't want to do. And when you have a team like that against Suzuki, there are going to be times where he's going to want to be super creative and he gets kind of like off his game a little bit. And that's where the freedom for him to adjust and he'll figure it out over time. Like he's that dynamic that that's not something I'm particularly worried about long-term. Um, but yeah, I agree. I thought like what he also, he does sometimes you sort of forget is he's such a catalyst that players are drawn to him that he creates time and space for his other line mates. I can't emphasize how much, important those two words are in hockey and in every respect is time and space so he'll let his line mates do uh, do more work in terms of skating and finding holes and he'll just dish off and then dart around because they're going to be drawn to him because if you can take him out of the game that's a massive part of their offense so there is some tactical like situations where you have to look at oh he doesn't look dynamic well part of it's you know, due to his opposition and then him recognizing what are the best counter moves when I am on the ice. So I agree with you on the eye test. No, no, he looked really good. And he just, maybe the numbers don't represent. And that's the problem when we talk about like using that kind of data. Right. And I emphasize data, not analytics. We is that sometimes context. Context is key. Right. And then if you're just, and it's funny, I had a conversation with a, who's a guy who's a data scientist, he's a professor, and we were talking about, hey, do you, like I was t- asking him about qualitative analysis. And he goes, never done it because I'm just a quant guy, right? I just deal with lagging measurements and try to work on some of the leading. And like, what about the context? He goes, I know, right? And he's like one of the brightest people in hockey, like anal- like w- what we call analytics. And he goes, I know, right? It's just he accepts the fact and understands that that is an issue right is like recognizing as you mentioned the context so you know you can look at the metrics and go oh Caulfield had a bad game based on these metrics well what's the value of it like what's the value of those metrics is that your end all to be all in your decision making because if so uh oh you're in trouble like you're You're behind you're behind frankly yeah yeah you're caught now you're caught with these leg measurements in a hole and you're going to make really poor decisions based on that so I, I agree with you. I thought Caulfield had a really good game and he did what he needed to do to make his teammates around him better. Yeah. And right? I thought and, produ- and, and productive as much as uh, like scoring a goal and setting up the Petrie goal, like the Petrie assist, the assist on the Petrie goal was phenomenal. Like the attention to detail 
to go kind of like a backwards flip pass across his own body to Petrie behind the play. And then Petrie kind of had to do the same thing on the shot, shooting like almost behind himself. Yeah, to, I can't do that. Thread the needle. No, me, me either. <laughs> me either. <laughs> that was incredible. But I almost feel like Suzuki's play on the third goal was better because it it almost seemed like he was playing like a strategy game where he pulled the Calgary defense over to one side, waited for the perfect time to flip that pass over to uh, create the goal for Ben Schrott. I know he only to got the... A, uh, to create a space. Exactly. Create created that space. Yeah. And he only got the secondary assist on that one, but it was a phenomenal secondary assist. Like, all three goals that he was involved in tonight. Spectacular plays. And, which, and that's another... I agree. And that's another version of when you talk about context. Everybody gets caught and they're like, oh, he doesn't have as many primary assists. I'm like, the primary assist could be a tap pass. Which can be honestly like really not that, you know, consequential to or be a honest. Shot and, that creates or a, a rebound. Shot. Right. Like it really, I mean, in many cases, like that's why I always fought against the overvaluation of the of the primary assist. I'm like, man, if I was a like you watch me as a player, I'm the king of my ridiculous like three foot, four foot, like like garbage primary pass that somebody smashes into the goal. Oh, look at Malloy and his primary like assist rate. <laughs> I'm like, dude, trust me. The the defense, the, the defenseman who like made this thread, this beautiful pass to me, and it went off like the heel of my stick because like I fumbled it. <laughs> Come on, like that's that's what I mean, right? So like you real that that's what really matters. And I like I agree with like Caulfield's game and Suzuki's game. Like I think both those guys, like you talk about their style of game and what they do. Like you can't just measure it on those, those, those metrics. It's just, it's dangerous. Yeah. hundred percent. I see a few people mentioning uh, Rem Pitlick as well. I feel like Rem Pitlick is a really interesting player because anytime you get a guy off of waivers who can come in and like score goals on a team that isn't scoring goals, it's really interesting. But I think there's a bit of a danger with Rem Pitlick and the Montreal Canadiens right now that I, I don't think they're going to fall into the trap, but I look at Rem Pitlick and I see Paul Byron, right? And I think yeah, that if they value sort of, him yeah. as more than what Paul Byron was when they got him on waivers, that's a mistake. But if they see him as just Paul Byron, that's great. He's a good added value guy. The speed that he plays with, the speed to burn, he can play on the penalty kill. Excellent. But don't expect him to be like a dominant force at even strength. Not like I, I had an argument with Eric Angles earlier this week. Because he's a he replacement level player. Yeah. That can provide value in circumstances, right? There are like he's specific to certain areas of the game that you can put him in that he's going to have some success in. Not all the time, some of the time, because if he wasn't, wouldn't have picked them up on waivers. I mean, exactly. yes, not every NHL GM or their, man, their management staff make good decisions all the time. They clearly don't. But, you know, if he's that valuable, they're not, teams aren't letting him go on, on waivers, right? They're going to, they're going to put him in a different position. So take the bump, take the bump of the new player. Cause you're going to have that. And with Marty St. Louis and find a way to make him more valuable. Because there is a potential that you could move him if you really wanted to, or you keep him 
and you put him in a position as a, like a penalty killer, a fourth line guy can give you some energy, give you some speed and use that speed effectively. Make sure that he understands how he has to use the speed within the concept that they're playing. Right. Um, so yeah, you keep that Eric. I love it. I like, I love Eric Angles, but get, you got to give it to him once in a while and make him like, make him think and then make him laugh. Right. Yeah. A hundred percent. Yeah. I was giving it to him uh, in private. I, I disagreed with him in public. And then we had it out in the DMS a little bit because uh, he had posted an article that uh, Arturi Lekanen was expendable now because Pitlick and Dolphin were new 200 foot players who would be cheaper on a fourth line. And I was like, if you combine Dolphin and Rem Pitlick together, then they're a 200 foot player, but one of them's all defense and one of them's all offense. So you can't really call them 200 foot players. And like, they look not, good right now because they're both playing with Arturi Lekkinen or not Dolphin. Dolphin's playing with Gallagher and Hoffman, but Pitlick's well, I mean, underlings have taken a big jump forward because he's playing with Lekkinen. Well, and also Dolphin. I mean, like in a, in a team that's not in the bottom five of the league, would he even be playing in the NHL? No. I mean, even this no, team, he wouldn't be he wouldn't. if they weren't so injured, right? Like, No, he wouldn't. He'd be in the American League, and that's where he would be. And it's just, it's the bump because he's playing. Now, that, I'm not saying that he couldn't play in the NHL. He can. But as the, as the rosters improve, he's going to get squeezed out. He just is. And in many cases, maybe Pitlick will be too from that respect. You know, they like there's a lot of players that play in the American League or who are on waiver claims that can play in this league. Yeah. But as the teams get better and that's the whole goal of the organization, those players get squeezed out. That's why you see these players move around to the bottom 10 teams of the league. You know, you can actually watch them, right, <laughs> move around that. And there's a reason for it. Right. They're, they're basically temporary um, hole fillers. There's no way those two players are going to replace Lackney. Like I. I agree with you on that. That's like in terms of like the overall value of what that, those players are going to provide. They provide value in certain areas, but let's get real. They're replacement level forwards. Yeah. And I mean, I think okay. if you have a fourth line that's built around Rem Pitlick, that's not a bad thing. You know, obviously um, you want your center to be a little bit better, but I think maybe if it's like Ryan Paling or Jake Evans, that's, that's not a, that's not a line I want on a playoff team. No, but I mean, as a rebuilding team, Right, sure. it's not the I worst mean, thing. No, because he's like the, con the contract is cheap. Yep. Right, and you know what you have, and he can like he's not a he's not an anchor as a player, so he fills that role temporarily until you find somebody better, and you need to find somebody better. Yeah. And I'm not Absolutely. being mean. I'm just I'm looking at it honestly from a roster construction like philosophy and standpoint. Is these are placeholders until you get somebody better. And if they don't, then we're talking about a regime change again. So, um, <laughs> and we, you don't, and I'm sure the Montreal Canadiens don't, don't want that. Um, you know, one thing we actually didn't, I don't know if you guys talked about or mentioned was the hiring of Nick, of Nick Bobcroft in the amateur staff. Now I've had a chance to like talk to Nick quite a few times out in the field. Um, actually, I actually had dinner with a bunch of uh, New York Rangers and stuff when I was out at a tournament and I actually meant I actually sent a text off to Kent telling him how great a hire I thought it was to get him like because the fact that he was available and guys like that shouldn't be available. So for the people who don't know Nick really well, because he's kind of under the radar for the most part, um, he's exceptionally intelligent and exceptionally hardworking. 
So when I've spoken to people who've worked with him in Los Angeles and in New York, those two things are the first two things they say about him. Exceptionally intelligent. Like, you know, there's, they talk about always, there's a lot of smart people. No, no. Like he's in a higher level of intelligence and he's very well educated. um, And he's an exceptionally hard worker. Like he's a grinder. So I think he fits exactly what they need in terms of Montreal and that extra like set of eyes to run the amateur staff. Cause I would, I'm going to make the assumption that Mark, that, you know, Marty's probably going to be still remain as the director of player personnel and oversee sort of like have that extra set of eyes out there for the amateur and the pro. And then Nick will come in and run that amateur staff and he doesn't suffer fools. And he's got a little bit of arrogance in him, which I actually particularly really like when I talk to him because he, he just doesn't suffer fools. Like if you're going to talk to him about players or methods or protocols or procedures, you have to bring evidence to support why you're saying that he's just not going to accept it blankly. He's going to like, well, wait a minute. If that doesn't make any sense to him, he's going to say something to you, which I actually really appreciate. Right. So, and if anybody gets a chance to go, like, if you go on elite prospects, click on his profile and there's like a picture of him and the look he's given somebody over his shoulder. That's <laughs> it's the perfect look of like, when I look at Nick, he's like, Oh, that's Nick. Right. It's like, what are you talking about? Right. So, but I thought it was an excellent hire. So as we had talked about the first time about what's more important for this franchise, it's really building up your staff is like your hockey operations staff has more impact and more value than the players that are traded at this deadline. I know everybody's going to be excited about the value getting back and, you know, building the franchise up and that's the focus, but those are temporary. They're temporary. In some case, in, in most cases, they, they can be reversible in terms of what the value is and getting stuff back, even if you make mistakes. But if you make mistakes in your hockey operations department, in many cases, they can sometimes be irreversible and consequential to the success of your regime, right? Because if they fail, you fail. So which is why I think that's a, a massive like hire for them. It's going to be he's going to really help their amateur department a lot. So we'll see how that changes overall. Yeah, I, I think the, the there was some criticism of that move, both in terms of, uh, you know, somebody that Jeff Gordon's worked with in the past. And I think people are very hesitant about uh, people coming in and just hiring all their friends because of the whole Bergevin regime and how yeah. much of that and I went won't... down. But I think this is a little bit different. But the other criticism that I saw was maybe you can tell me if you think it's an unfair one. I think one of them is especially unfair, but people who look at uh, how New York developed uh, Leas Anderson and the other being Capococco, who was the consensus number two at the time. So it's kind of stupid that to has criticize n- that. The development of a player has nothing to do with Nick. He's right. a talent evaluator, right? Unless you put him in that position to develop players, which I think he could do because he's intelligent to enough to do so, to do multiple roles, which you don't want him to do. Look, that's has nothing to do with Nick nothing to do with and what he did with the New York Rangers. So he's been a part of like two big rebuilds, one in like LA and then one in New York. So he is like, based on what he has done, you know, I think that's, I think that matters. Right. And he's and he worked in Boston as well, obviously. Right. With, with Jeff. So he's been in a couple stops with them. Um, I think like, I think those criticisms are one completely unfair and two, not even remotely accurate 
or truthful to what his role was and what he did in the organizations he was in, in New York. So I think it's like, I don't know where that was brought up, but if I was in the New York marketplace, I would have said that's silly and sort of like bash that down. Like, cause that doesn't, that's irrelevant. Cause he was, uh, they're your like head European scout in New York. Am I wrong there? Or well, he, no, he got director moved. of European. He was director of European scouting, but also he ended up being um, the right hand man to Gordy Clark. So he was um, the assistant director of player personnel in that role. Now it's kind of some roles are a little bit different in certain organizations, but he was really Gordy Clark's right hand man. Cause Gordy was starting to wind down and not do as much traveling and, um, which is why he's moved over to a pro scouting role in, with New York Rangers. So Nick started taking on those bigger roles. And I don't think Nick will have any difficulty being a director of amateur scouting, running a staff for the Montreal Canadiens. So, and this is from my experience of not only um, speaking with Nick, you know, at different tournaments and seeing him around games, but also speaking to people who have worked with him in three different organizations. So, and this is, Obviously, this stuff has been all off the record, uh, but all of it's been positive. You know, when I say like, you know, obviously intelligence and work ethic, you know, obviously matter. I mean, but at a really high end, like one person I really respect had said to me, he's one of the hardest working people I've ever worked with. And one of the smartest people I've ever worked with. And then, you know, a couple of them said, yeah, and he has the ego to go with it. But (laughs) I like ego. I like it. It's actually valuable. You know, it's not a bad thing. Yeah, there is sometimes where ego can be, you know, disruptive, but he has high expectations. And he expects you to follow along. Like he expects you to be smart enough to figure out and to understand the concepts and procedures and why they're doing what they're doing. Um, Because he doesn't really suffer fools. And I think that's somebody you want in that situation. Because you can't fail in the amateur draft. You cannot. You're, I don't care. Montreal Canadiens are a perfect example of what happens to your franchise when you fail in amateur scouting and player development. Because your GM is forced to rob Peter to pay Paul and make all these trades and free agency. And sooner or later, the bottom falls out. And that's what yep. happens to this franchise. So how about if we build it up the way it's supposed to be through the primarily through the draft and development? So I think, you know, I'm curious to see what Montreal does with their player development. Like that is like the big thing is like, okay, who are you bringing in and how much money are you going to dedicate and staff are you going to dedicate to your player development? Because, you know, we can get, and if you want to get into it, we can talk about their 2017 to 2021 draft, because I think those five years are going to have more of an impact on the success of this franchise than what they get in this trade deadline. And what yeah. happens in free agency in the summer, those five years are going to matter more. Like that is, that's what they're, they're staring at. So if you even look at it from those five years, they had 22 picks in the first three rounds, five in the first 10 in the second, seven in the third. And of those 22 guys, half of them going to have to play half, have to play more than 200 games in the NHL. So like, as I had mentioned, we had, talked about the Montreal Canadiens um, prospects in our show this weekend on Hockey Prospect Radio and got into like four four players. But if you look at, you know, 2017, the start, yes, Josh Brooks has had, you know, injuries, 
but him and Iconen, one of those two have to play because I suspect Palin will continue to develop and be a player. And it will he be a third line center. Could he be higher? Maybe. But, you know, if he's a third line center, I think that's that's good. Third line center. That's that's good. That's good. I don't a decent, know decent result for a 25th overall pick. Before we get to no, it's deep- actually it's actually good, though. No, oh, for sure. I mean, that's what I'm, I'm trying to say. I'm not by decent. I don't mean like average. I mean, it's, it's a right. good result. Before we get too deep into the prospects, though, talking about uh, development, I know that uh, it was reported last week that there's expected to be a big move for the Canadians in player development. And I want to get your take on this, Sean, uh, Shane. Adam Nicholas is expected to join the Montreal Canadiens moving from the Maple Leafs, which is kind of surprising that the, La- the Leafs would allow that to happen in season. But uh, he's worked with tons of current and former NHLers. Seems to be highly regarded. Do you think this is a big positive move in terms of player development going forward? Yes, and and hire more people like that. Yeah. Now, like great organizations... So I know some may irk the Montreal Canadiens fans, but really great organizations in certain in in certain areas are perfectly okay with letting their staff move on to bigger roles because the whole purpose is is to when you hire somebody is to help them internally grow and get better and give them opportunity to get better on purpose. So you know you're probably going to lose one of them or two of them as it goes on. I think it's a really good first step. And what you need to do is hire three more got three more people like him. Like I like if I ideally if I look at it with like don't worry about budget. I want two people in player development at the NHL level. I want two people dedicated to the American League. I want another two people dedicated to the prospects that travel around. I want six people. That doesn't include the goalies. That's yeah. a whole separate department. I want six people on player development. And that seems like a lot compared to if you look at some other teams, but who cares what other teams do? Like, think about the cost that you have to pay if your prospects don't turn out, of don't develop. So what does it cost you in free agency? What does it cost you in the trade acquisitions to help try to replace that? It's crazy. And like, don't worry about the salary. If you're paying somebody $150,000, $200,000 a year, say, say you're paying $200,000 for each one of those six people. Who cares? That's nothing. What is that? <laughs> right? Like that's $1.2 million plus all the other um, expenses that go along with the budget for that staff. $1.2 million. That's a fourth line player. Yeah, exactly. They're, they're, they are, they are 20 to 30 times, maybe even 50 times more valuable than a fourth line player. Those six people. So you'll look at return on investment. So, that is a smart decision by the Montreal Canadiens. Now go find like four or five more people just like him and pay them and have somebody lead that staff specifically because yeah. that'll make the difference. Because when we talk about prospects, it's actually not on the amateur like evaluation side as we talked about Nick and having him come in. It's really now on the other side of like, okay, we've got these players and they're 23 and younger can we make them into NHL players? That's really it. That's the difference. That's the success of this organization is those five years. Because by the time you draft this year, that player, the first round pick, like the high first round pick should be probably playing in a couple of years, but everybody else is going to be probably draft plus five. 
right? So yep. f- think about five years from now. That's a long time. What's Unless like, you get really lucky, right? Or you do, you find you, a diamond get, in the rough. You get a Bergeron, in, a Bergeron in the second round or something crazy like that, which is really rare. So let's, that's unlikely to ever happen. So let's, you know, let's be realistic in terms of what the expectations are of the turnaround time of these, of these prospects. So I agree, like on the player development side, it's a, it's a really good hire and now go find more people like that. And there are, there are a few out there that they could pluck. Um, and some of them are not even working for NHL teams. Like I could, I'm not going to throw names out because I don't think that's fair to the people that I would throw their name out, but there's some people in this, in the market, not necessarily in the Montreal market, but in this, in this industry that could be easily very good hires for Montreal and just add to their group. Yeah. There's the names exist. Uh, just a, Little note here, uh, Sarah Y says, I read in an interview that there was practically no player development department when Gorton came in, no communication with players and prospects, players' families, or nutrition and food. Yeah, that was uh, pretty wild when that came out. And I think you can see quite clearly where the priorities lie based on the interview that Mark Bergeron did around the beginning of the season with Mark Antoine Godin talking about uh, Jordan Harris in college and how he hadn't spoken to him for about a year. And then Ken Hughes comes in and he was like, yeah, Jordan Harris, we think he might want to sign in Boston or New York. Nothing we can do if he wants to sign there. And then Kent Hughes, right. a couple weeks after he's hired pretty much, goes down and watches, I mean, I guess it was more than a couple weeks, but he goes down and watches uh, the Bean Pot in Boston. And who does he meet with? Harris. And all of a sudden he comes back and he's like, yeah, I'm confident that he's going to sign here. Paying attention to people matters. <laughs> okay. Know, like, yeah. It, so yes, and we'll, I'll I'll say say this. So we have a guest comes on our show on a regular basis. His name's Pat Malloy. We have the same last name, but we are not related. Most people think he's my brother, uh, <laughs> and he's based out of the Ottawa area. And the reason why we have him on is specifically to discuss those factors of you know when you're speaking, you have to speak to these players not like not once a year. Like player development should be speaking to these players once a week. Yes. Once a week. And you build a specific player profile for that player. It's a, there you have tactical reports and then you, uh, and you break down specifically what you want to work on with those players and why and how it's going to improve them in their specific areas. And we're going to give you drills and, and different like other exercises or drills to help you, build upon that so those when you when you change what you're working on it becomes habit so it's you don't have to think about it it's automatic it's an automatic response so we talk about those things we did end up doing i think it was a 17 different uh segment series on player development and we ran it all last year and we ran it this year because the segment segments were so good into about understanding and breaking down player development and my uh, co-host Brad Allen actually used to teach MMA fighters and he was a collegiate wrestler about biometrics. And we got into those conversations mentally and emotionally about the, what it matters to player development. And you look at the teams that have the best player development, look at the LA Kings. You know, you ask anybody in their management group or their directors of scouting, how many times their player development talks to their, their players. It's like on a daily and weekly basis. Because you have to. Yeah. Like, 
you just spent millions of dollars acquiring these players because think about the budget of your entire staff and then you don't bother to talk to them that's just asinine crazy to me it's wild to me that's a fireable offense if i'm an owner and i hear that out of my general manager you're fired fired because i can't trust the rest of your processes like you basically there's no point we might as well just draft on video scouting and analytics and fire an entire entire staff because there's no point of spending the money to go out there and actually watch the players live if you're if that's your development strategy that's crazy like lucky i was i'm not a member of the montreal canadians like media general media i don't live in montreal because you guys would have heard me screaming about this every day <laughs> because it's just crazy just from a business standpoint i'm not looking at hockey just on a business management standpoint of operations like let's just we mean you might as well just flush money down the toilet Go outside, put all the money that Jeff Molson has into a big barrel and light it on fire. Like, it's like I, I can't tell you how asinine that is. Like, it's it goes against every business principle that you could ever learn. So, and I think what Jeff, I think, is really realized is, yes, there's some really good traditional hockey people out there. But if you don't marry that together with sound business principles in like human performance and player and personal development along with like all these other protocols and procedures, you have no chance of winning. Yep. No chance. Right. And that's where I, I'm, that's why when I first came on with you, how curious I was about, and I really emphasized the importance of, yeah, forget about who you, who you trade for. Yeah, that's great. That's nice. No man. Who, who are they hiring? Right. Because that's like, that's the legacy of the team. Players come and go. But the staff, if they stick around for a decade or more, they turn the team into what it is. And what is the team right now? Second worst team in the league. You bet. I mean, frankly, I I know things are going well lately, but it's a a bad bad. team, a poorly constructed team. All right, let's talk about the prospects from the last five years, because going through this list, I think that we can say relatively confidently, even if like I'm not super high on him, uh, Alexander Romanov is definitely going to hit that 200 game mark for the Montreal Canadiens. Uh, probably hit it relatively soon, like next. I guess I don't know if he needs another year and a, and a bit. He'll he'll probably hit that. Cole Caulfield definitely going to hit that. Kokaniemi would have Pretty hit good. that, but uh, that already huge... has. He's over 221, yeah, but not yet. for the Canadians, right? Yeah, but uh, yeah, bit of a lost opportunity there. Of the players on that they've drafted, let's. We talked about uh, Jesse Yalonen last time you were on the show and how you think he's a guy that really needs to hit. Who are the guys that you look at over this last five years of drafting that you think are most likely to hit that? I, I think we can leave Caden Gooley off because I think everybody assumes that he is as well. Uh, but most likely to hit that and guys that you maybe won't hit that, but you really need to hit that in order to get to the next level for this organization. So if we look at in terms of historic, I'm not going to use the past uh, draft success as an indicator for the future for the Montreal Canadiens, because, and for the viewers who, who don't, or, and the listeners who don't know, um, for, so if you look at the salary cap era from 2006 to 2015, the Montreal Canadiens were the worst 
team in efficiency at drafting and developing players to play more than two of games. So I'll leave that at that. Now that the regime has changed, I can't use that because they're going to like their decision-making process and their, and their personnel is, is going to change. So I have to look at it looking forward in terms of, okay, they had 22 players, as I mentioned, that were drafted in the first three rounds from 2017 to 2021. I think ideally 10 of those have to hit, if not 11. So we've talked about the ones that already have, and, you know, Kokniemi is left. Um, we think Palin's going to make it. Um, I, you know, we think Cole Caulfield and Caden Gooley will make it, you know, barring catastrophic injury. So let's get through. Um, if I don't count Palin, I think Josh Brook is needs to make it. I think he does. I mean, injury is going to be an issue. He's 23. That's it, it might end up being an, a big ask, but this is where player development really comes in. Um, and you can get, might be able to have to get a player out of that. Jesse, you'll, you'll know, you'll own him, As I mentioned, he's another player. Um, Jaden Struble. Mm, this is one that I had circled now. And it's funny because we talk about him this, um, this weekend on hockey prospect radio, about he's, a, he's one of the best athletes I've seen in a long time. And that's something that both Brad Allen and I talked about. And like the kid is jacked. He has 5% body fat and he's an athlete. And he's a guy that I think they really have to tap into um, the 2019 draft. He was a second round pick. He's a player. Luke Tuck, I think, has to play. And Jan Misak has to play out of the 2020 draft as well. I think Luke will end up probably being more of a uh, north-south um, energy third line winger that provides size and grit and does all the dirty work for a team. Jan Misak is another player has to make it. I'm not sure exactly where he's going to fit. He may end up being one of those tweeners, those second, third line tweeners. That's where I sort of like he, you know, if things work out in terms of a ceiling, I think he's in there. He has to hit. I know it's a conversation that play, people don't want to have to talk about, but Logan Mayu has to hit. He's got to hit because you can't trade him right now or in the next year, or maybe even the year after that, because the, uh, because of what happened, there's a toxicity about him. So you're going to have to develop into an NHL player. He has to hit. You can't lose that first round pick. Riley Kidney has to hit. You know, I think um, captain, the other second round pick in 2021 has to hit. Uh, it'd be great if Olafson or Eichenen could hit those second round picks. And then Harris. I mean, I don't put a lot of value in the third round picks hitting because the percentage is so low. So if you look at historically, you're talking about like 20% chance in that range of a guy playing 200 plus games. Like if I told you, you had, Hey, you had 20% chance of living. Well, that's terrible. Right. So like, we got to sort of look at that as like the, as like, okay, it's, you're not, it's not written in stone that that's what's going to happen with that player. But historically through the salary cap era, that's the average his, like of the, all the NHL teams. I'm once again, I'm not going to look at the Montreal's average because that's, God awful. Yeah. Um, and not as relevant under the new regime. It's not, honestly, it's not relevant at all because they're going to change how they develop players and how they assess players moving forward. So, and the assessment helps on the development side too, because you have to work in syn- synchronicity with your evaluators, right? Because the player development staff will, will evaluate them a certain way and they'll other, other people and the other staffs will look at them a certain way, right? And you marry that together. But those are the players like if that I look at is Brooke, Eikonen, Yolonen, hopefully Olsen, he's a maybe. Caulfield and Struble have to play. Uh, Tuck and Misak, I think they need to play. 
And you got to get a two out of Mayu, Kidney, and, and, and Kaplan. They have to. You, like, you don't have a choice because it's been so bad for so long. You got to pull 10 players out of that. And not including the guy, you know, the guys that we had talked about in the sort of the Caulfields and the Ghoulies of the world and uh, of the Palings. Like you got to, you got to hit on. It's more important for me to see that the second round picks hit because your first should be like, I mean, I can tell you how bad the Montreal Canadiens first round picks have, have turned out. They're yeah, at, they're we at 40, know <laughs> 40% efficiency. It's awful, right? You need to yeah. be in the 90 percentile, like 90% of your first round picks have to play 200 games. You get into the second round, and if you want to be a contender, you got to be in that 50%. Every second second round pick has got to play. And if you want to be even better than that, like you got to hit. You got to hit two players a draft. If you want to be a contender, it has to be two players and three players, two players and three players, and it has to be that rotation for a whole decade. If you want to, if because you need to be able to take some of those players that do make it and trade them off for better assets. Yep. Right. You need to have the, that ammunition. You can't be just trading futures all the time. Like you're in a better position to upgrade your team. If you're trading away a prospect that is in the American league and is getting, you know, 0.75 points or higher per game as a forward or is developing as a defenseman, you have such a greater leverage. So that's why I like, I just emphasize, I know, like I come from a biased area of like, cause I've had hockey prospect radio for 17 years and I've worked as a scout in the USHL, you know, and I value, and I had to learn traditionally how to scout from older scouts. So I understand the value of that. And yes, I understand the, va- the bias, but I looked at it from a business operations standpoint and it's the most valuable tool that the NHL team has to build value in your organization is drafting developing forget everything else because like i'm not saying you can't you don't want to be good at it because you should but if you're bad at those two things it doesn't matter if you're good in the other area because what you end up being is the montreal canadians right now yeah that's what you end up being just a couple of comments here that i have to read out because they're good uh, doug martin says the problem with shane as a guest is he doesn't share any opinions yeah that's true yeah you you, you bring me in for my opinion and then like and i try to i I base all my thoughts on doing really strong research of because i go in the field with the scouts and i travel with them overseas and into europe and go out and have beers with them and sit with them at games and learn as much as i possibly can and so you start and then you start doing research on how successful they are and who's good and who's not and why Start asking the quiet the questions of why, what, and how. Yeah, right? absolutely. Right? Uh, so and and apply it. Dan Hall says, "Shane, you're crushing my mood, dude." I'm assuming that was about uh, talking about the Canadians being terrible at drafting, but like, understand that what we're talking about here is that things are moving away from that. So let's yes. we're not we're not crushing the mood. We're we're building towards no, the mean, future, just like the Canadians are. And, and that's uh, why I said that's important about the hires they just made in terms of getting Nick. That's a huge hire. Yeah. Like it's like really, really smart. And I looked at his track record. Um, you know, he has it. Nick Bobroff is, is a really excellent hire. So look, trust me, there's a big positive vibe. They're pushing it in the right direction. And of course we had a, a couple of people mention uh, Joshua, Ra- Joshua Waugh, because obviously he is lighting it up this year in the yes. QMJHL. I think him along with uh, Sean Farrell 
and yes, uh, Matias Norlander are kind of like the dark horse players to get into that category where they're uh, not first or second round picks, but they could become something. I feel like Norlander is a question mark because of how this year went. I thought that he actually got a lot better as he played more in the NHL and, and kind of got used to the smaller ice and how things go in the NHL. And then the way that, to, to me, it kind of felt like the Canadians took advantage of him in the whole being injured at the start. Uh, they took it to, I think it was like a certain amount of time. If he was still in the organization, they were allowed to send him to Hamilton and not allow him to return to, Swe- to Sweden. Sorry, not Hamilton. I'm still stuck in like old, old Montreal American Hockey League team, Laval. Laval. Uh, they ended up not doing that and allowing him going to go to Sweden once uh, Bergevin was let go. But I do wonder if there's like some trust that needs to be repaired between Norlander and the organization. And he doesn't seem to be faring that well back in Sweden this year for Forlanda. Well, so it's all reco- we'll it's, and it's all recoverable. He's it's a 2019 yeah. draft, so he's young. So the reason why I didn't really emphasize as much as the third round picks is that, like historically, it's harder to hit on those players. But that doesn't mean you don't put as much effort and time into those players as you do your second round picks because you have to. I just because of time, I didn't want to go so deep that. We're going to because we could spend four hours talking about the Montreal Canadiens prospects easily. But I mean, those are the set. You know, we talk about the Harris, right? The Cameron Hillis, the Norlanders. Like you got to hit on those guys as I'm looking at my list. Like if you can hit on those, that's all the bonus. That's when I talk about you hit two players and you hit three. It's that third to like, you know, seventh rounds. And I'll tell you how difficult it is to hit on the fourth to seventh rounds in the salary cap era. On average, fourth to seventh round, 15 players total will play 200 games. So throw those all those rounds, those five rounds into a hat and randomly pull out a player because that's how tough it is to get one player. So those first three rounds are critical. So I'm curious to see how much more emphasis are going to put on player development. So if I'm a Habs fan and I'm looking at the regime change and what they're what they want to do, these steps are the right steps. And I understand that it's it's difficult to hire people because a lot of them are, that you want are on NHL teams or they're in contracts. But I think because they're so, so short-staffed in their operations, everybody's currently just managing and there's less time to go hunt for people and have these conversations. That takes time. Due diligence takes time. Like, you know, they're missing like an assistant GM to run Laval on a regular basis, right? They really should have another assistant GM that's responsible for the amateur and pro staff, right? That oversees what Nick and the amateur staff does and what the pro staff does, right? And, and then the, the assistant GM in Laval is responsible for the management of that team and player development, and then keeping an eye on what's going on in the East Coast team. And don't get, hey, and this is one of the things I really like. What happens with Montreal, what's happened with Montreal? These are things in the past that's happened that I do like. Is their farm team moved to Laval, and then their East ECHL team is close by too. They're all like right there. So yeah. if you're talking about the importance of player development, management and player development can get on these players and see them and work with them immediately, and not wait and not see a guy for like, oh yeah, we saw him like six weeks ago or two months ago, two months. Two months in the year of a kid who's 20 or 21 years old, that's that's like five years for you and I. You know, it's so critical to be with them on a regular basis. 
and just keep moving him in the right direction on and off the ice. Um, because you, I don't think you can spend enough money in those areas. No. And it's going to be just, interesting to see in it. I think it's going to be very quick that we see the difference between the sink or swim. It's up to you attitude that the Canadians had like the old school attitude of the previous regime is, to a much crazy. more proactive approach that this regime is taking it. Like it's going to be really interesting to see how many players develop relatively quickly because Almost can, how many can they salvage? Yes. Yeah, exactly. How many, can, how many can you salvage as that's what we're talking about in this, like not so much the 2021 or the 2020, but really the 2017 to 2019, how much can you salvage now operate? It's an operation of salvage. How much can you help them recover what they've like lost in terms of time that I'm really fascinated in. And then how are they going to do that? So why are you doing it? You know what you're going to do, how you're going to do it. That's what I'm interested in and how many people you're going to hire. And Oh, I, I do like the, um, adding the title to John Sedgwick. I think that mattered in terms of because that's he is an assistant general manager and to sort of give him his specific roles of what he is. And because when you're talking to other agents or talking to other teams and that title is there, it actually carries more weight than people realize. Yeah. He's the assistant GM, right? And then give him the power and the management of, and I like the fact that what he brought up is he changed it from the analytics staff to like, no, it's really information, right? And I remember we had talked about it. It should be the R&D department, research and development. That's what it should be. His quote about, about the analytics staff actually remind, it sounded almost verbatim what we were talking about the first time you came on the show about yeah, maybe building John was analytics. Listening. I don't know. Yeah, maybe yeah. he was. Maybe John's a, a loyal listener of Game Over Montreal. Because he was flat out bringing up like data scientists, data engineers, the actual jobs that we talked about of it's not just bring in some person who's good at analytics talk, you know, like it's building a real team together. Exactly. Stitching it together from the, the scientific part, the research part, the modeling part, and then translating that for the hockey people. It's, a whole cohesive process that have has to happen. It can't just be one person that's relied on to do everything. Cause it's, it, it, it's a it, bunch it's, of different jobs. Yes. And it's funny you brought it up because um, I remember uh, it was brought up to me. Eric Engels had wrote, wrote an article about John talking about that specifically and their search for the unicorn to find that person who can marry the, all that data together, who has scouting experience and then business experience, but understands data science. And it's not just the numbers. It's not the quantitative. It's the qualitative as well. And marry that all together so that he can, that person can communicate and manage that department effectively. Because you can't have a whole department full of people whose discipline is just analytics. Yeah. That is a recipe for disaster, which is why if you look at the more robust um, I'm going to call them R&D departments. I'm not calling them analytics departments anymore. I just refuse. I'm stating on this show, I refuse to call it that because it's ridiculous. It's the better departments. And then you look around industry, other business industries, that's what they have. They may have one or two people max that have analytics background because I'll somebody with statistics and probability. And somebody who actually understands how to use mixed methodology is combining you know, quantitative and qualitative together. Because what do you think scattering reports are? So you've taken all the information from your amateur staff and your pro staff, 
Well, that's qualitative. But so the analytics people are just going to dismiss the qualitative completely because they don't understand how to actually break down qualitative information. It was the discussion I talked about with a professor that I know that works in like statistics and probability and analytics. He goes, oh, I've never dealt with qualitative before. Well, then you can't have that person manage it as, as much as I think that person's a genius and he is in his realm. It's in his discipline. If you don't have somebody who can stitch that integrate, what it really is about integration. It's integration of data and data is not numbers. Data is information as John had pointed out. And I think he's going to keep hammering that home. And it's important to kind of get, build that narrative to take how things are used and the words we use and change what the meanings are. So we talk about, no one wants to hear about rebuild, right? It's the dirty word, right? We need to change what the word, we got to change analytics and call it data because that's what it is. It's just data. And then what do you use? How do you use that data? You know, and how do you bring it together? Then how do you weight it? What's more valuable? What of all the information you get, what's the most valuable? Like you and I see it on Twitter all the time. The fights. We saw to actually this recently with Alan Walsh and Dom oh, and Athletic going <laughs> at each other about data, right? Friend of the mom, show, Dom and I really like network Dom and employee I, and, I, <laughs> Alan Walsh. And, I, and I look at his model, I'm like, okay, it has value, but it has flaws because all models do. My models do as well, because it's not scientific law. But it's that's a perfect example of the argument of not understanding what data really is. And everybody can get caught in their lane of like, this is the one I built, this is the one I use, this is the one I understand. And you put too much weight on a certain model and that's where the danger comes because you get blinders and then you're focusing and funneling everything through that so i like i'm i think the fascinating thing for me is what john does with the r d department how much they add to their operations staff in terms of player development that's a secondary one and then once again then what are they going to do with their missing assistant general managers and what happens there? Cause they're missing two. If you're going to keep Marty LaPointe as director of player personnel, and then Nick, Nick's going to be the director of amateur scouting. What are you doing with the other two assistant GMs? Cause even with Laval being in this, basically the same city, you need someone, you, you need someone in there like managing that every yeah. moment of every day. It, it's you a full time guys. Job. Yes, 100%. And then you need a system GM that oversees both the amateur and pro staff. You had to have it. Spend the money. It's okay. You, yeah. you need seven core people. So that to me is more interesting than what they do with the trade deadline. I know the fans are like, because that's it's instant gratification. It's that like that bottle of that's that bottle of beer. It is like, you know, the Habs winning a big game. It's instant gratification. I get it. But I think the impact is more on the operation side of who they hire than what they do in terms of the next three weeks lead and then into the draft. Yeah, I think There's that's going to be critical. A lot of excitement on all sides here for the Montreal. Oh, if Kings. I'm a house fan, I'm super you know? excited. You know, like, honestly, I don't want to be like I'm not like not Debbie Downer here. I'm talking no, 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 no. You have to look at the past to realize, okay, we can't do that again. And how did we get there as a new regime? But moving forward, if I'm a Habs fan. Look, I can tell you behind the scenes of people that I've spoken to that work on other NHL teams that set, have said to me, I would love to work for the Habs right now. These are people that are already are employed by other NHL teams 
that say, based on what's happening, I would love to work there in Montreal. I'd love to work for the Canadians, not only just because of the franchise and what that means. It's the Montreal Canadians. You may, I think sometimes if you're a Habs fan, you may not appreciate what the outside world thinks of that franchise. It is the New York Yankees. It is the like premier franchise of this entire league. Everybody wants to work there. Now they do. I've had texts and phone calls like, oh, yeah, what do you think is going on in Montreal? I goes, oh, I'd love to work there. I like, I like what, you know, Gordon and, and Kent are beginning to put together there. There's such great opportunity there. You know, if you win there, you're a god in that city. You're a god. Yeah, right? Absolutely. You know, all right, we'll probably wrap it up there because it's late and uh, yeah. we've got to get this up as a podcast for everybody to listen to. Thanks for joining me, Shane. Uh, awesome. I will Appreciate get you it. to tell everybody where to find your stuff, obviously, but I do want to mention just before we close things out, uh, best well wishes to Arpan and Arjun yes. Bazu and their father, who's in India right now in critical condition due to complications from COVID-19. They are trying to get over there. This is why you haven't seen Arpen covering the Montreal Canadiens that much. So everybody send positive thoughts, or if you're religious, you can send your your prayers out to the Bazu family because uh, it's a tough situation. I can't imagine what it's the, like for him. Yeah, He's the a horrible great feeling of being a, yeah. a half a world away. And not being and, able to have any control. Of yeah. What, and it's your dad. Yeah, it's it's his dad. And, and Arpin, if you've ever met him, is one of the nicest people you ever meet. And so I'm, you know, I'm wishing the best for him. He's one of my favorite people in the media world. Um, so I'm hoping that he gets a chance to get over and see his dad. Um, it's your dad, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's your Hopefully dad. they uh, they clear things and allow them to go over there because even I understand that it's a COVID world and there's rules and regulations still and we're but there's a humanity slowly... aspect that you just take care of it exactly they shouldn't be allowed to go it, like yeah. this shouldn't even be one restriction get on the next flight we're gonna take care of it you're cleared go you know yeah. we still like yes I get it we're human beings take care of each other yeah a hundred percent you gotta you gotta clear the way there's something that you have to get in there and just let them go. So get the bazoos back to India, let them go and, and take care of their dad. All right. So yeah, uh, Shane, tell everybody where to find your work. Uh, well, you can see me on Twitter at Shane Malloy, and then that tells you when the show's on. So it's Hockey Prospect Radio. It's on this week on Saturday at 7 to 9 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. And then on Sunday, 8 to 10 a.m. Eastern Standard Time, it's replayed multiple times during the weekend and we are talking about the Montreal Canadiens prospects so we'll talk about Struble, Alonin, Tuck and Misak right in the first segment right off the hop so we get into it for 20 minutes about the prospects if you want to listen to, to that um, tune in we always appreciate it perfect thanks so much and thanks everybody for joining in here and uh, coming on for the late show we had far more people on the stream than I expected <laughs> very active chat tonight I know I think people are really excited to watch this team all of a sudden it, 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 they are worth watching now that's what I said on Twitter watching this game 100%. even when they were down three to one I said no no matter how this game goes win or loss like the Canadians are worth watching now even the Jets game was worth watching they don't give up they want to play it's good life is good covering the Montreal yeah. Canadiens. <laughs> Thanks everybody for joining us and we will see you again on Saturday night.